Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. We'll be in Mark chapter 4 this morning, uh, reading verses 35 through 41. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35 and ending with verse 41. And as you find your place, I ask that you stand for the reading of God's word. On that day, when evening had come, he, being Jesus, said to them, being the disciples, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. I don't know if you know this or not, but the human brain has an amazing capacity for facial recognition. That even when the image of a face is blurred or distorted, we can often identify familiar faces. For example, you might be able to guess the identity of this individual. Does anybody know who that is? Anybody take a guess? You may not have even seen this individual actually before, but... It's Simon Cowell of American Idol, uh, X Factor fame. You may have never seen him before. But if you have, you may have recognized that this was him. You probably certainly have seen these people before, but can you recognize who these individuals are? Anybody take a guess? It's, it's former President Bill Clinton and uh, Senator Hillary Clinton. Now, it's amazing that you can recognize who that is, right, given the blurring of the photo. How about this one? This is very blurry. Anybody have any guess who that is? What's that, Aaron? It's, I think it's Elton John. I can't confirm that, but I think it's either Bono, but I think the hair is too light, so I'm pre- I think it's Elton John. But if I were to be able to bring this image into sharper focus, we would probably be able to identify it with more certainty. Now, you might, you might be thinking, what does any of this have to do with Mark chapter 4? And you might be concluding I'm losing it. You know, last week I had three points that were all the same. That was weird, and now I'm doing this, but rest assured, Bob and Mary are back. They're actually with us this morning, so welcome, Bob and Mary. It's wonderful to see you. You've been, you've been very missed during your time away, so we're glad that you're here, and as you can see, I'm starting to lose it, so uh, we're glad that you're back, but there is a point to this because what Mark is attempting to do throughout his gospel is to bring into sharper focus the identity of his main character so that we can recognize who he is. But Mark is going to do this not through a series of images, but through a series of stories telling us about what this man does and what this man says. And up to this point in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark, Mark has already shown us this man healing lepers, healing paralytics, and declaring that his sins are forgiven, 
healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath to display that he is Lord of the Sabbath and revealing the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. This has already been happening in Mark's gospel. And now, in three successive miracles at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, Mark is going to show us this man as he's commanding the forces of nature, reigning over the forces of evil and darkness, and even conquering disease, sickness, and death itself. And all of this is a way for Mark to present the reader with the one all-important question. Who then is this? Who is this individual? And Mark is driving us to one inevitable conclusion. In fact, our passage ends with this very question. Who then is this? But the passage doesn't only give us the question. It also reveals the answer because in this passage, Jesus reveals his glorious identity in the storm as Savior and Messiah. His identity is revealed to us here. So as we work our way through this passage this morning, I want to consider with you three points. First, the route of the disciples to the shore. And then secondly, I want us to look at the response of the disciples to the storm And then finally, we want to consider the reaction of the disciples to the Savior. So those are the three points that we'll be looking at this morning, starting with the route of the disciples to the shore. Now, after a whole day of teaching parables by the sea, this begins in Mark chapter 4, verse 1. It now is evening time when we get to verse 35. So Jesus gives directions to go to the other side, and so they all get into a boat. Now, Mark is not explicit that this body of water is the Sea of Galilee. It's never explicitly mentioned, but it's almost certain that it is the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake located in the northern part of Israel. It's about 21 miles long and 8 miles wide at its longest point of width. So it would take about an hour or two in Jesus' day to cross this body of water by boat. Now, the Sea of Galilee has been and is still notorious for sudden violent storms. Because the Golan Heights rise to the east, you can kind of see them in the background there, and the Judean hills to the west kind of bend and wind and twist, creating very narrow wind corridors. Now added to that, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level, so you often have a mixture of cold air and hot air that causes fierce storms to spring up very quickly without warning. And that's apparently what happens here in Mark chapter 4. And on this particular occasion, the storm must have been extremely severe. Because remember that many of Jesus' disciples were fishermen by trade and would have been quite accustomed to the stormy conditions on the sea. Also, we can judge that this storm would have been particularly severe because in the parallel account that we find in Matthew chapter 8, Matthew actually uses the word for earthquake to describe this storm. So this must have been a storm that was terribly fierce. But what I want us to think about is why the disciples are on this particular route. Why are the disciples in this particular situation at this point in time? They find themselves in this storm, in this crisis, in this danger, in this trouble, because they listened to Jesus. That's why they find themselves in the middle of the lake, because they listened to Jesus. Remember, he says in verse 35, let's go over to the other side. This is all his idea. So if you happen to find yourself this morning or at any given particular point in time in difficult circumstances, you ought not automatically conclude that it's because you've done something wrong or because you've sinned 
and God must be punishing you for something. You might find yourself in difficult circumstances simply because you're following Jesus. That might be the reason. What is it that makes us so quickly want to assume that following Jesus gives us immunity from storms in life? Where do we get this idea that becoming a follower of Jesus is going to make life easy? We certainly don't get that idea from the Bible. And experience doesn't really teach us this either. I mean, you know that in many parts of the world today, becoming a follower of Jesus subjects one to threat of death. I mean, you know that, right? That, that those places exist in many places in the world. And further we, furthermore, we know in our own experience that following Jesus does not provide us some kind of escape hatch from life's troubles because we know that the children of Christians get sick too, just like children of unbelievers. We know that the fields of Christian farmers don't get any more rain in a drought than the fields of those who are not Christians. We know that the houses of Christians get destroyed in tornadoes and hurricanes and floods, just like everybody else's houses. And Christians lose their jobs and have financial difficulty and struggle. And sometimes Christians experience this because they're trying to do the right thing, they're following Jesus, and they're committed to him. That's why sometimes these things happen, right? Having Jesus in the boat with you does not mean that your lives are never going to get rocked. Jesus does not offer a life of perfect health, of a marriage with no difficulty, and a life without trouble. Jesus doesn't guarantee that he's going to protect his children from every danger and every difficulty in the world. Instead, Jesus says to his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. Storms are inevitable, and you will experience them to varying degrees. Sometimes you'll see them coming from the distance. Other times they will spring up with little or no warning. But there will be storms in your life. But the storms that we experience are not accidental. They're part of God's plan. Jesus is the one who's leading you, leading us on our route. But sometimes he leads us into difficult situations and into stormy waters. And what's your response when that happens? Well, oftentimes our response is much like the disciples. So let's consider that second, the response of the disciples to the storm. Consider first what Jesus is doing, though, in the storm. He's sleeping. After a long day of teaching, he's physically drained and in need of rest, showing very clearly the fullness of his humanity. He's tired. But it also shows us his perfect peace in the midst of any circumstance, in apparent contrast to the disciples. Because while Jesus is sleeping, the disciples interpret his sleep as Jesus being uncaring and unresponsive to their trouble. This seems to be indicated in the question they ask him in verse 38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, I don't know about you, but to me, this sounds actually more like an accusation than it does like a question. You know, sometimes we can ask a question, but it's really an accusation. And to me, this sounds like it's very possibly an accusation, not a question. In other words, what's behind the question is, you don't care about us. 
Because if you did, you'd be up and you'd be helping. Now, can you on any level relate to their response? Are you ever tempted to adopt the interpretation in the midst of your struggle, your hardship, or your storms that God doesn't care? He doesn't care if you're suffering, and he doesn't care if you perish. Are you ever tempted along with the disciples to question his love and care in the midst of your storm? I've said before that I'm rarely tempted in the midst of difficulty and trials and storms to question God's existence. What I am tempted to doubt is his love and his care. Because after all, if he loved me and cared for me, I wouldn't be experiencing this hardship, right? And so because I know God is real, the conclusion I'm tempted to draw is that he must be snoring through my pain. We question his love often in the midst of our storms and our difficulties and our hardships. But not only do the disciples question his love and care, they also question his word. Remember what Jesus said to them at the beginning. Let us go over to the other side. Alistair Begg, who's one of my favorite preachers to listen to other than Bob, <laughs> says on this particular passage that Alistair Begg, or that Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, hey, Let's go over, get caught in the middle of the lake, and I'll drown. That's not what he says. He says, let's go over to the other side. But here's what the disciples do. They allow their circumstances to define their response rather than the word of Jesus to define their response. Let me say that again. They allow their circumstances to define and determine their response rather than allowing the word of God to determine their response. And isn't that what we often do? That's how we often respond to storms. We allow our circumstances to determine the way we respond other than the word of Jesus. Yes, Lord, I know what your word says. Your word says that I'm going to make it to the other side. Your word says that you love me. Your word says that you work all things together for good. But my circumstances are telling me that I'm not going to make it to the other side, that you don't really love and care for me, and that you can't work this for my good. Are you ever thinking that in the midst of your difficulty and your storm? You see, what we do is we tend to interpret the word in light of our circumstances rather than interpret our circumstances in light of the word. And when we do this, it leads to fear and to despair. It leads to fear and despair. But it's not simply the fear of the disciples that's their error. Their error is not in recognizing the danger and going to Jesus to get his help. Their error is concluding in the midst of the storm that he doesn't love them and they question his word. John Calvin makes an appropriate distinction about our fear when he says it's not every kind of fear which indicates a want of faith, but only that dread which disturbs the peace of conscience in such a manner that it does not rest upon the promise of God. So what are we to do when we find ourselves in the midst of danger, trouble, difficulty, hardship, storms? What are we to do when we're tempted to fear? Well, we do what the psalmist does, who tells us, when I am afraid. And notice he doesn't say I'm never afraid. 
the psalmist says is this, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So when you're afraid, because you find yourself in danger, in trouble, in a storm, put your trust in Jesus and in his word. Because storms are designed, at least in part, to strip us of our self-sufficiency. And this delusion that we're under, that we can just handle everything by ourselves. Storms are designed to drive us to Jesus and cry out to him. And that's what happens on this particular occasion. They're driven to seek Jesus for their salvation. But storms are also designed to show us who Jesus is. As the one who is our only power and our only hope for reaching the other side through the storm. And in this story, we see the disciples are confronted with who Jesus is. And so we want to consider finally the reaction of the disciples to the Savior. Now, of course, the reaction of the disciples is a reaction to the action that Jesus takes. So what exactly does he do on this occasion? Well, we read in verse 39, He awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea, or, and, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, just for a second, imagine yourself in this exact situation. You are in the middle of a violent storm on a lake. The wind is howling all around you. The waves are crashing. They're filling the boat. And then someone in your company stands up and tells the wind to be quiet and the sea to be still. And it does. The wind stops and the waves are still. Now, and then the picture isn't that this takes five or 10 or 15 minutes after the storm clouds have blown past. It happens immediately. Right when he speaks, the wind stops and the waves are still. Now, how would you respond if you were there in that situation? Even if this happened, you're in the middle of a storm and it ends abruptly like this, you'd be freaked out. Storms don't end like that. They kind of die away. So that would be enough to freak you out. But if the wind stopped abruptly and the waves were stilled because someone spoke to them, well, I would have to conclude that I was in the presence of someone or something that was alien, something otherworldly, and that this something or someone had a power that I could not even begin to comprehend. I'd be rattled, wouldn't you? But if I had an awareness of the teaching of the Old Testament, I would draw the conclusion not only that I'm in the presence of something otherworldly, but that I'm in the presence of deity. Because you see, in the Old Testament, it's the sovereign God who rules over the waves and stills them. Listen to what Psalm 65 says. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves. And consider the verses that called you to worship this morning. Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. 
And so perhaps it's familiarity with these Old Testament passages that cause the disciples to react to the Savior the way they do, a reaction of great fear. This is what we read in verse 41. They're filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? Now, you know, we often draw the lesson from this story that Jesus calmed the storm and he can calm the storm in your life as well. And that's true. As true as that is, we do have to notice that the calming of the storm does not have a calming effect on the disciples. It actually stirs a storm in their hearts as they are confronted with who Jesus is in his power and in his majesty. But Jesus also confronts them and us with a question. In verse 40, he asks them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice the connection that Jesus draws between faith and fear. Or perhaps the contrast he draws between faith and fear. We are so afraid, an inordinate fear, a paralyzing fear, a panicking fear. We are so afraid because we have little or no faith. That's why we get that way. Trials have a way of revealing our faith or our lack of it, don't they? Storms have a way of doing that. And Jesus says, have you still no faith? But do they still have no faith in what? What were they to have their faith in? Well, Jesus isn't explicit here, but isn't it obvious? Do you still have no faith in me? After all you've seen me do and all you've heard me say, do you still have no faith? Can you still ask if I care? I mean, if Jesus didn't care, what would he be doing in the boat? If Jesus didn't care, what would he be doing on the earth? He came because he cared and was committed to rescuing sinners. And after all they had heard him say, could they still question his word? Did they still have no faith in his word that they would make it to the other side? But even more than the disciples, even more than the disciples, how can we, in light of all that we've seen Jesus do and hear Jesus say in the word, question his love and concern for us. How can we question that in light of the cross where he threw himself into the storm of death to rescue us and give us life? We need never question his unfailing love or his unerring word. We need never question that. And your circumstances are not the determining factor in your life. Whatever your circumstances are right now, they are not the determining factor in your life. Whatever storms you're going through, the presence of Jesus and who he is is the determining factor in your life. But in the end, the story does leave us with this all-important question, the most important question that you can be confronted with here in verse 41. Who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? And Mark is confronting you with this question because you have to answer it. What is your answer? How do you answer this question? Who then is this Jesus? And the way you answer this question will set the trajectory, not only for the rest of your life on this earth, but for all eternity. And the conclusion that Mark is pointing you to is that Jesus, this Jesus, is the Messiah. He's saying in the story, behold the commander 
of the wind and the waves, the ruler of all nature, the Lord of all, and put your faith in him for your salvation. And if you do, if you put your faith in him, that doesn't mean that you're never going to experiencing, never going to experience strong storms, damaging winds, or big waves. It doesn't mean that because this world is full of rough seas. It's full of sickness and pain and loss and grief. And you're guaranteed to have your heart broken in relationships. There'll be trouble in your marriage, in your family, at work, in your finances. There'll be persecution for your faith. But in the midst of all of these difficulties, all these storms, all these crises, all these troubles, you can go to Jesus and know that the one who rules over the wind and the waves can handle everything you're going through too. Now, I don't presume to know what that's gonna look like, that Jesus is handling your situation because I know that sometimes storms can last a long time and you can wait for a long time for peace and stillness to come. And as you're waiting, you can be tempted to question his love and his care for you. But I wanna exhort you this morning that when you're tempted to question that, in the midst of your storm, remember the cross and know the depths of his love for you. And what putting your faith in him does mean is that no matter what storms you're going through and no matter how long they last, your storms are not accidental. They're not a mistake. God has designed them for his purpose. Jesus is in control of them. Jesus can calm and still that storm and you're never alone in your voyage to the other side. In fact, your only hope of reaching the other side safe and sound is by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. But when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you can know that no storm can keep you from the place that the risen Jesus is preparing for you even now, a place with no more storms and no more tears. He has guaranteed your safe arrival there by silencing the storm of death with his death and building a bridge for you with his cross. Let's pray. Lord, your word has confronted us this morning with the question, who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? Give us a faith that will not question your love or your word, but will cling to Jesus. And we give you our praise and we sing to Jesus as our Messiah, the name above all names, Emmanuel, the rescue for sinners, the ransom from heaven, Jesus, our Messiah, Lord of all. Amen.